Action Park Media. Okay, before we get into Victory of the Podcast, I want to do a couple quick Action Park Media shout-outs. And we can do this because Kevin Dillon and Doug Allen both do not listen to the podcast. And that is confirmed. So, quick shout-out. Hockey season starts. We got the Isles Seat Podcast. It's a, it's a deep dive into Islander hockey, which I'm very passionate about. And we got Missing Curfew with Shane O'Brien, Scotty Upshaw, and Jimmy Broadway-Hayes. Hockey season starts. So those are a couple of our sports podcasts. We'll be launching a bunch of other podcasts uh, coming up in the next month. And also you got all your favorites here at Action Park Media. So without further ado, Victory the Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Allen. And once again, Kevin Connolly in studio for Kevin Dillon, who is um On the mend. He's on the mend. I spoke to him this morning. He's on the he, he's on his way out. Past the sickness. He could have come on today, but I said, look, Kev, let's just take an extra couple days and then um whatever, I guess whatever you want to call it. We're gonna do like kind of a flip-flop thing. Today we're gonna we're gonna do our our insider interview, and then we're gonna have Dylan on the, the second episode later in the week. Give him but, a couple days. But either way, Dylan, Dylan, you know, just don't fuck around with this. Dylan was sick and yeah. he's going to be fine. Yeah, but I'm, he sure was... he'll, I'm sure he wants to tell you that. Yeah. So anyway, today's going to be great, though, because uh, I'm excited. We've got David Frankel, who directed the Entourage pilot. He's also directed Devil Wears Prada, Marley and Me, Miami Rhapsody with Jeremy he's Piven. He's just been doing movies forever and ever and ever. And, you know, I, I say this and I'll, I'll say it when it gets on, but there's like certain people who come into your life and really make a difference in your career. And getting David on this pilot was enormously important uh, for it working and for getting everything done. And uh, I don't know if you know any of these stories, Kevin, and, and I don't know if David does, but every single director in this town passed on this. So just every, so- every big time director that's on a list, right? There's a director list and it's like, hey, go get one of these guys. Yeah. So just so everybody understands and I'm, I'm in the middle of starting this whole process all over again with this show I'm doing in London called Day Ones. So I'm in the grind now and it's really reminding me of everything we did uh, on Entourage. But, you know, you sell a show to HBO, especially then when they were the king of all media and not no offense to Howard. HBO was the game that you wanted to be at. You sell the script, you think your life is set and it's meaningless. You spend the next two years busting your ass, listening to notes, trying to get it to the right place. The fun begins. They tell you, okay, we're making the show. And then they give you a list of 10 directors. That you have to have, or it's it's a no-go. It's a no-go. Right. So, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese, James Cameron, you know, I'm exaggerating to some extent, but really they were very successful. Lots of film directors. It's important for the audience to know that when you direct the pilot of a, of a TV show, even if it's the only episode you direct, you're forever attached to that show. Yeah, right? well, so there's a royalty thing with the Directors Guild of America. You'll get a, a fee for every episode you do. And the reason for that is because the pilot director is really supposed to set the look of the show. Creates a tone. Is around for casting. So he's involved with with everything. and uh, Which is why it's a 10-person list. Because yeah. there's very few people that can actually do that. You know, there's a thing with film directors, right? And rightfully so, they've earned it, but they're like film snobs and maybe TV is not what they want to do, right? So I could see it would be easy to pass on. But I'm not even talking just the film directors. I'm talking TV directors. Everybody passed on it. Everybody passed on it. And when I Why Frankel chose to do this? Because 
listen, he has his pick of the litter. The ironic thing is he only he did two of the 96 episodes and the only other episode he did, which is one of my favorites, was the introduction to Billy Walsh. Yeah, I told him to look at that <laughs> at last Chateau, night. yeah. So hopefully we can talk about that too. But I think I remember saying to David Frankel, and, and honestly, sometimes you just have to be a salesman and you just have to sell. And I said to Frankel, as I recall, going, you missed out on Sex in the City. You don't want to miss out on this, which by the way, I didn't believe at all. I was just like, this show's not going anywhere. Day after day, I'm getting calls that this one doesn't want to do it. That one doesn't want to do it. Because so. he also obviously has some um, relationship with Sarah Jessica Parker, right? From Miami Rhapsody or whatever it yeah, is. But I, I mean, guess. I know he's he's very in demand, but he makes a movie like The Devil Wears Prada and Marley and Me. And he could do, I mean, he's a super versatile director. So for any filmmakers, directors, anybody out there listening, listen close to what he has to say. So after the break, we're back with David Frankel. And we are back. And uh, as I said in the intro, some people will come into your life and and I'll explain to David, who may not even know it, why he was so instrumental in helping my career. You know, I said, David, before you came on that, like, we couldn't get a director for this pilot. They gave us a list of five, seven people, whatever, and people didn't like it. And I have no idea. We're going to talk to you what you thought about the script. But I it was a desperate call when I called you in Miami. So anyway, welcome, David Frankel. Um, how you doing? I'm great. You know, it's a thrill to reconnect. Uh, two of my favorite people in the world. So. You know what? He hasn't aged a day. Yeah, he looks... He really- oh, my God. I have so little hair now. It's it's uh, terrifying. I'm not afraid. To- Just looking at myself on Zoom is terrifying. <laughs> well, you are you are looking good. And I know you're, you're in Miami, which is pretty much a different world than California. Uh, we're not... There's nowhere to go here. Everything is closed. And I know Miami's wide open. So how are you living? Are you like... Uh, yeah, you guys are... You guys are living in a horror movie i'm you know i i'm enjoying life you know i'm i'm out raving three or four times a week i <laughs> take the yacht out with a hundred of my clothes no i'm um i go to the supermarket i you know with a couple of masks on i i uh i play golf i play tennis that's it yeah that's literally it you know i got a tesla a couple months before the uh pandemic i don't even have to go to the gas station I'm, <laughs> Me that's too. it you know david i have a tesla and i play golf as well you gotta get out there and hit them around <laughs> Well, by the way, I have, I have a Tesla and I play pickleball obsessively, but I have not played in six weeks. I, I don't leave the house. I mean, it feels You're like doing this weird beard thing. This is like protest. This beard. is Doug this has is, a protest beard. until oh, yeah. I'm vaccinated. I'm not shaving. But anyway, as as we move away from COVID, I told you on the phone, but Kevin had it, Dylan, and uh, he's recovering and he should be back next week. So anyway, David Frankel, Entourage Pilot director i I, he's also just a big time director i mean i introed you earlier but yes a lot of that came after after entourage so the (laughs) the the big time uh you know so very generous and i definitely have entourage you know definitely entourage in my career in a big big way that's good to hear i want to know is there any shot and uh you tell me if it's wrong did meryl streep call you up and say i saw an episode of entourage and i want you to do devil wears product that's exactly how it went down and she (laughs) said you know i passed on on being a guest star on the the show and i and it's the bit worst decision i ever made in my career no you know what happened was i was uh as the producer of devil wears product put me up for the movie and uh the studio executive said no fucking way am i hiring a tv guy and then uh entourage came out and, and by the way you know this is after like 10 years of working for hbo and band of brothers i mean you know the idea that i was a tv guy you know we showed you the, the how radical the divide was then and how much you know things have changed in the last 20 years but yeah. uh 
Carla Hack and the, the executive saw Entourage, and that you know it was in the first season. It was she, it was you know, it was, but it was an instant hit, and and that that made all the difference. Devil Wears Prada, which is an amazing movie with uh, Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep. I was in Big Thank Bear. You. I was in Big Bear the weekend it came out, and I was like holed up trying to write by myself where you don't see anybody. And uh, right. and I'm watching, getting ready for the Devil Wears Prada to start. All of a sudden, like 14. African-American gentlemen come into the uh, Devil Wears Prada day it's opening in Big Bear. And uh, I'm like, I remember this story. I'm like, okay, whatever. Anyway, the movie starts about two minutes in. Sugar Shane Mosley is one of them, which is a champion boxer (laughs) for anyone who doesn't know. He's the real deal. But he turns to me, not because he knows me, he's turning to whoever's behind him. And he goes, yo, man, what the fuck is this? I'm like, what do you mean? It's Devil Wears Prada, Meryl Streep. He goes, Oh shit! I thought it was a horror movie. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I think they enjoyed it anyway. But it was a pretty funny story. So yeah, that actually wasn't that good of a story. Um, how was it? We'll get to Entourage in a second. But how was obviously two of the great actors in the world, Meryl Streep, and you know, how how was working with the two of them? That must have been incredible. Uh, it was, you know, that was a dream come true. Honestly, uh, you know, she's she's phenomenal, uh, and uh, and she made it really easy on me. I mean, she tested me the first uh, week or two. You know, I, I, there were boundaries that needed to be set and, uh, and I had to prove myself, but we trust each other implicitly really early on. You know, she totally got the movie and, uh, and she was thrilled with the way it turned out. And, uh, you know, there's a million stories I could tell you about. Yeah, but I, but I, I am curious when it's somebody, I mean, you can count on one hand how many people carry that sort of gravitas, right? And Meryl Streep Thatcher, yeah, would be one sure. of them, yeah. right? So do you try to do your best to find out about her process going in, or are you just kind of winging it, or do you have you know, to like, all right, I, I'm no, going to plant I, my feet? You know, I yeah, no, I like, uh, well, you know, the, I, I just sort of follow the. There's this uh, great quote um, uh, about acting, which is, you know, great actor says, "I only want to hear four words from the director: faster, slower, louder, softer." <laughs> and uh, and I mean, you know, you, I mean, I didn't. There's, you didn't get much more from me when I was directing you, Kevin. But the, the uh, you know, that's the that's my mantra when I'm on set, and especially you know, the more talented the actors are, the less the director has to do. And and uh, and with Meryl, it was really just making sure she had room. The um, my favorite story, uh, which represents you know her greatness, is uh, we were shooting the very last scene of the movie, literally the the last moment that her character is on film, and she. She sees Annie Hathaway across the street and she gives her a little smile. And then we cut to a big crane shot as, as Annie walks away. And, uh, and she's in the back of a, of a Mercedes uh, town car. And she, um, so we set up the shot. We covered the car with uh, lights and paper and all the crap. And she, she did this. We shot this scene. And, uh, and she does the little smile. She looks out the window. And uh, I say cut. That's it. And we take down all the lights and we are moving on to the next shot. And she comes up to me. Like, I thought you had left the, the set. Comes up to me and says, David, do you think I could do one more? And I look back. I mean, the car's around the corner. <laughs> <They're> gone. <there's> no, <laughs> everything's gone. I'm like, uh, sure, Meryl, no problem. <laughs> and uh, so I tell the DP, who's like, you know, head explodes. But, and they recreate the whole lighting setup. So she goes back into the car. She does a little smile. And then she turns to the driver and she says, go. And that was the last word of the movie, which was completely unscripted. And it was so on character. And it was her, you know, she had found it a moment late, but that was the, 
but she found it and it was so brilliant. And it was, it's those kind of things that you wanted to let happen in the, um, it was fascinating that, you know, that she did this great scene where she wore no makeup at all. And, uh, and she didn't tell me about it at all. You know, I met, I just, I, we were in the shooting in the St. Regis Hotel in New York and I saw her in the hallway as she came off the elevator. And I was like, holy cow, she's not wearing makeup. I said, uh, are you ready to go? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, and that was it. You know, she just, it was, uh, she wanted to surprise me as much as, um, as herself in, in, in doing that. So that's awesome. Well, that's uh, pretty incredible. I would, yeah, kill, was, I would kill to work with her. Dude. How bad did Grenier crumble at uh, when he first stepped on set with Meryl <laughs> Streep? You know, I said, yeah, I, uh, so Adrian was in Devil Wears Prada. He was great. You know, I mean, he could, he could summon Vince in any circumstance. Right. <laughs> I think he was, uh, he, you know, he never, I, I didn't see a lot of nerves from him and I think he had a really good time working with Annie. So we had one, we had one night that that we just got lost in the weeds shooting a scene. Poor Adrian was like on the, you know, we're shooting Annie's coverage for about nine hours. And, you know, <laughs> okay, Adrian, we're ready for you half an hour. You know? But uh, uh, but he was great, very supportive. And well, I, you know, it's a very different thing for him to shift from Entourage, where you know he was part of the focus of the show. That and, was a great role for the, him. It was a great it was role. It was a great for him. role, and. And they have lovely chemistry. I mean, there's a great, there's a great uh, breakup he has with Annie, which we shot uh, in Soho on Halloween night. Uh, and uh, I think there were crowds down the street, sirens going off, music blasting. I mean, it was really hard to shoot. Like how you said, Adrian is always Summons. able to summon up Vince and Chase, except for for this podcast, by the way. He's the only <laughs> member of the cast who's not oh, come he on yet. He's it, yeah. hiding in the fucking weeds somewhere. But so, David, did you... Were you involved in getting him that part because of Entourage, or did you, or did was that already set, or did you come on and and are you involved in all the casting of Devil Wears Prada as well? Yeah, we went. You know what happened? We uh, so we were casting, and it was one of the last roles we cast. I mean, the last role we cast was Stanley Tucci, which was six weeks into shooting, um, which was you know the studio is freaking out. I read every actor in New York, and uh, and uh, finally the studio said, if you don't cast somebody, you know today, and I had lunch with Stanley and he was on set 48 hours later and just killed it. But, um, with, uh, Adrian, uh, we went through like a whole long list of people and, uh, the studio had somebody that they really liked, uh, uh, who I also admired. And he was the guy who did the table read and there was just something missing after the table read. I mean, we all just said to ourselves, you know what, that, that just didn't feel right. And I said, you know, I know we could do this. I just, you know, it was sort of, uh, and I just called, called them up and said, um, come do it. But two good learning lessons, which we've talked about on this podcast is, is one, a bad table read can get you fired. And two, a yeah. good relationship with a director on a television show that maybe people didn't know if it was going to go anywhere could lead to a Meryl Streep and Hathaway movie. So let's talk about the importance of, of a table reading. So David, as the director, you know, obviously when you're, when it's a movie, especially a movie of that size, there are other voices, the studio, Meryl Streep, lots of people weigh in. Is a table reading a problem for you? Did you have a problem? Was it were you, were you part of the camp that felt there was something missing at the table reading? Yeah, I, I mean, I it was uh, it came from. I mean, I was a little reluctant about that particular actor going in, and uh, and uh, you know I, he didn't persuade me. You know, the studio said, "Well, give him a chance to uh, him at the table reading." On the on the other hand, it was somebody who read for uh, the Stanley part who was doing us a favor, but thought he was auditioning and did very well at the table read and was, will forever, you know, be 
disgruntled by the fact that he didn't play the part in the movie. So, you know, it cuts both ways. I mean, some people come in and kill it and they still, for whatever reason, don't, don't get it. I mean, I was very, you know, it was my first big movie. I was very slow to make decisions. I mean, Doug, you know what this is like, the, the, the anxiety and the neurosis that infects you. You just are always trying to better deal yourself. Like if you want an apartment, oh, we can find a better apartment, you know? And, yep. and until like push comes to shove, you know, you don't make the decision. And, right. and uh, fortunately, I had like this huge studio thing. Oh, you have to make, <laughs> make, make some decisions. But it was, you know, there were also, there were also, it was uh, finding locations for that, for that movie were particularly difficult because, you know, Anna Wintour was sort of running New York at the time. And sort of all these locations that uh, seem like, you know, basic new MoMA or the, you know, the New York Public Library are all affiliated with the fashion industry and with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Museum. You, that's where her big uh, ball is every year. So no one wanted to so run a, so a lot of those. A lot of those locations weren't available. And it, and it translated to that casting also because. There were a lot of people in the fashion industry, you know, I learning from Entourage how the value of cameos getting the real people to participate. And uh, it was very hard to get people to step up. I mean, we some of the casting was kind of crazy. We The best was um, Aline Brosh McKenna, the writer, screenwriter, who did you know, a brilliant job, was uh, on a plane and she called me and she said, um, uh, Tom Brady's wife, Giselle, is on the is on the plane here with me, and uh, I said, "Ask her to be in the movie." And uh, really, and there's, <laughs> she went up to her and said, "You know, uh, would you want to be in the movie?" She said, "Yeah, but you know, I don't want to play a model, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of Anna Wintour, and I'll do anything to, to <laughs> right. you know, make fun of her." Okay, great. And so she and she was great. She yeah. was actually a fantastic actress. She still looked like a model. So, uh, but yeah, and then you know we got uh, Valentino came in at the last minute, and that, you know literally the night before. But, it, but a lot of uh, famous uh, designers refused to participate. That's awesome. So uh, speaking of table reads, how was Piven at the Miami Rhapsody table read? How did that go? Wow, that is you're <laughs> you're talking to an old man, Doug. I, I'm, I'm like I I'm reaching back. I mean, you know, uh, Jeremy. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but Jeremy and I uh, were uh, roommates at that time. Uh, he had, uh, we were wait, sharing wait, a house wait, wait, in wait, uh, Hollywood wait Hills. Wait, Colin you and was Jeremy and, uh, and no, were roommates? Yeah. We, yeah we had, I had a, a two-bedroom house in the Hollywood Hills, and, uh, and uh, I couldn't afford the rent without a roommate. And uh, it, it was a spectacular place with a pool and a tennis court. I mean, it was really, really lovely up and he needed a place to crash. So he was there, and I remember his dad would come over and stay over. We we went through the earthquake of uh, the the uh, Northridge earthquake together, and uh, yeah, what a and then, So thing. when I was when I was casting that part uh, again, I I don't even know if we had a table read honestly, but uh, I knew, that was the part I just said, okay, Jeremy, it's going to be perfect. Well, I can tell you, there's no photograph, there's no video evidence that could make me understand you and Jeremy Piven living in a house I can't together. Either. It doesn't it's hard for me to wrap my it head doesn't around. Wrap, the weird there, is, there is no evidence. There actually isn't a photograph. I think <laughs> there's like, no there evidence. Is, I think it's one of those things for which there is no evidence except our own personal <laughs> testimony. But but he'll he'll for sure for sure remember it. Yeah. We want to talk to you about how much you helped and shaped Entourage and how that came together. I talked before you got on a little bit about the fact that, you know, there was a list of, I don't know, five, eight directors. And uh, it wasn't that there was an order. So it wasn't that you were the last one, but people were passing left and right. And um, I just remember 
There was a lot of anxiety on me when I called you in Miami to convince you to do this. And, you know, the truth is, I, I you don't know, you know, so everyone understands out there. I spent two years on a script. You're writing it. You got your heart and soul into it. And then they want you to bring someone on who's essentially going to be above you that they're saying is, you know, the person we trust to make this happen. So it's a weird dynamic to a to try to convince that person, but then to hire that person. But do you remember when you first got the script and, and what the call was? I do. I do. And whatever I say going forward, I want to tell you, I love the script. The script was great. And it was fantastic rewatching the pilot this morning because what really struck me is how quickly, efficiently, and brilliantly, and hilariously, the characters are so clearly introduced. I mean, they are themselves from the very first moment. And that was all on on paper when I got it. No, it and, wasn't. And that was... David, no, it wasn't. Uh, He's being no, humble. Wasn't. David's being humble. David, no, you because, told him that the script stunk. No, what happened, David, and, I, and I'm wondering if you remember this, for a year, the notes from HBO, no story, just fun, no story. Now, any writer, which David is a writer, knows to write without a story is mind-bogglingly difficult. And when I handed in the script to HBO that was gr- officially greenlit, I was like, this is terrible. Nothing happens. And all these directors passed. And then you came in, and I don't know what you thought when you saw that script. But I, I was talking about this this morning. From the moment you came in and you gave some thoughts and also you gave us the power and license to actually go in a direction. I told Connolly yesterday, the Ari story, which is the string that holds that pilot together, was not in there when you arrived. The here's a script right. and here's an offer. And you said two things to us and then I'll let you go with your recollections. But one line, I don't know if it's yours, David, or if it came from somewhere else. You said confusion is the death of comedy. And Steve Levinson yeah. and I would say that on the set every day. And to this day, Amb- ambiguity, ambiguity is the enemy of comedy. Absolutely. Yeah. We fucked up. Uh, we fucked up your line. But even when I'm no, working, no, you made it better. Even when I'm working on this new show today, I always say this. And what you just said is so interesting because a key to a great pilot and whether entourage is one or not, other people can determine, but introducing characters quickly and efficiently where you really know that they're distinct and individualistic is really important. So anyway, keep going. So do you remember the phone call? Well, not only, and, and not only that they're distinct and individual, but what you established was the bond between those guys. And that was the core of the show. And I did learn a little about that from Sex and the City. And I'll, we can talk about that later. But, uh, the, uh, but I, I did really respond to the script. And I, now, now that you're jogging my memory, I remember you know, story idea was the French director, right? That was the whole, that was yep. the idea of like this meeting. That was big, that gave the episode some shape. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I look, we've all been through development tragedies, you know, where you lose the forest for the trees and you were definitely like your head was spinning. <laughs> you know, His head is and they brought, they, well, they, <laughs> they, they cut you off at the knees and they brought you back to life, right? Like, didn't they? They, they, they gave you the, uh, the shock paddles and oh, suddenly they, you they, were back in business. They did everything that one could do right. to a human being. Uh, you know, the human body can endure so much pain. And I took plenty of it during that development process. You know, my history with HBO is I had done uh, a lot of uh, drama at HBO. You know, I'd done Band of Brothers and, and before that Earth to the Moon and also done the Sex and City. And then they said, okay, uh, we're going to do Alexander the Great. And I wrote the Bible 
for a 10-hour, $200 million miniseries for Alexander the Great. And, and I wrote the first three hours. And, uh, and then we went out for, to find a director, and Mel Gibson said he would do it. And so I was working with Mel Gibson on the show, and he decided, no, he's going to do Passion of the Christ instead, and he left. And that was the end of the project. The whole thing like, uh, imploded. Two interesting things just on a side to that so people know how much time and effort Alexander the Great to go write three hours of that, do all how that research. research alone? And then, have it, and then have it die. And then the second thing is when people want to think Entourage isn't as smart as it is, we got a guy who could write Alexander the Great because I could not do it. <laughs> never, I never dared write anything else again. But um, the, uh, uh, and by the way, you know, and if people are wondering, I, ha- I have only the greatest respect for Mel. He was fantastic. You know, obviously, you know, he has this sort of the mixed legacy. But, uh, you know, for, for me, a, a Jew in <laughs> Hollywood, he was, uh, he was nothing but respectful and a joy to work with in the brief time that we did. Just don't get together. around him after a couple of strong There's a couple ones, of cocktails you know? <laughs> and he gets a little boisterous. Yeah. So then HBO said, well, uh, how about working on this series, Rome, that we're going to do? So I said, okay, great. You know, that's no Alexander, but Rome, that's, you know, is equally grand and, and, and spectacular. So, uh, so uh, I was working with the, the brilliant writer uh, who created Rome. The first three episodes of that series were absolutely great. spectacular. Fantastic. Bruno is the, is the, was the writer. And, uh, uh, I mean, he's since won awards and had hit shows and everything else, but the first three episodes were some of the best writing I, I've ever read. And I was super excited. I mean, I was on the verge of leaving for the first casting trip to, uh, London. And I got a call from Carolyn Strauss, who was, you know, running things that under Chris Albrecht at HBO, as you know, and uh, she said, we just got word, the BBC, some complicated thing with the BBC and the financing, they were co-financing Rome, and they were demanding a British director. And uh, she said, we want you to do it, but we got to go through the motion. We got to hunt for a British director. And they, we've settled on a list of five guys. And if one of those five guys does it, you're out. Uh, and they went through four. And the last guy said, yes, it was Michael Apton. And, uh, and so I was out of Rome. Uh, just because they couldn't, have, they didn't want to give up the five million dollars in episode financing. Right, and they're um, like, "We got this you. other, we got this little so, other thing we'll throw to you, David. Check this yeah. out." <laughs> so yes, yeah. so then I get a FedEx thing, and it's like a thirty-page script <laughs> of like four guys in Hollywood, and I called Carolyn. I go, "Are you fucking kidding me?" I mean, it's <laughs> not exactly it's Alexander great. the Great. <laughs> yeah, it's great, but yeah, it's not exactly you know what I signed up for. And uh, she goes. And I've never, you know, it was the most sort of Tony Soprano showbiz moment I've ever had. I mean, she really, you are doing this and you are not, you are not questioning that you are going to do it. I, I love said, her. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll do it. And, uh, cause you know, I did, I did really enjoy the script, but it was just such a, uh, Oh, I uh, get it. When you, when, you wanna, when you want to direct something giant and visual and all of a sudden yeah. you're like a four guys in a room talking Rome. about <laughs> girls. But I mean, I just, just a, again, aside, Carolyn Strauss was the executive on this show who was awesome. And, and she I'm, was glad fantastic. To, I'm glad to hear that she strong armed you because, uh, I thought we were getting shut down when I called you that day in Miami. I thought it was over. If you said no. I thought we were it like, it might have been. Yeah. No, it definitely might have been. Honestly, it was, you know, it's showbiz love at first sight. I think we really connected. I, you know, got your sensibility uh, and, and, you know, had a great time working with you. 
We'll get into everybody's memory of me not wanting to do it, which is obviously taken on a life of its own. True. But when I do remember walking into the room and it was immediate, Doug has the kind of a similar look that he's got on his face right now. He's looking at me sort of intently and you were sort of like, I don't know, I could feel you sort of not nervous, but you were, I could see the wheels spinning and there's a lot of people and, and there's Frankel sitting there and you're like, okay. This that's guy's, the guy. Well, he's been there, right? right? I right. mean, he. Did you feel that when you came into this room of guys that were it was are, were so passionate and were kind of new? Uh, how, how did you sort of settle settle everybody down, for lack of a better? Well, there's no settling Doug and Love down. I mean, that's <laughs> the, the, you know the, so you know, but you had to sort of let them work out their anxieties and and uh, you know there were a lot and make clear that we were. On the one hand, we had a, they had already accomplished a lot. I mean, they were very committed to to, to Jerry as Turtle and to to Kevin uh, as Johnny, and uh, and then there were these big holes in the in the cast. You know, there was uh, E and and uh, Vince, and ultimately Ari. You know, I mean, we, 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 I thought Ari was going to be easy to cast. I thought, you know, it was such a great part. And and well, uh, Ari, we had. I had Ari in my first outline as Piven, but there was some confusion. Right. But about then whether... he had said no for so long. Right. right. I mean, that was kind of the thing. So we remember we read like another hundred guys, yeah. to, as it turned out. And then you, you know, Kevin, you you refused to come in for so long. It was insane. And and we, you know, so there were all these sort of placeholder actors who would come in and do e and. And we would say, yeah, they're great, but they're, you know, it's not, we haven't found the guy yet. And finally, and I don't know how, what was, who persuaded you finally to, uh, what was the, what was the trick to getting you in? Walt, I was Wahlberg part of threatened them. No, well, listen, and we, again, you know, Walt, Mark Wahlberg called me, you know, I had to go meet Mark Wahlberg for a drink. And of course, the fun thing is, you know, Mark threatened to, to beat me up in the corner, but Mark said, Kevin, I'm asking you as a favor to just go in and talk to these guys and explore it. And then it'll be done. And he, and he put it so simply and eloquently. I was like, Oh, all right. I don't know. He, he took the pressure off me because David, you mentioned something before. Yeah. I think there was part of me that was uh, afraid of the, of the role, but, but not in, in a way that I was too good or didn't want to be locked down, but yeah, maybe there was some insecurity or, or I, I don't, I don't know exactly what it was. And I wasn't sure if I communicated that it was all sort of happening very quick. And I, I just didn't know what to make of the whole thing, you know? Well, you, you know, look, you'd been acting already for a long time. You had the more, you know, more experience than anyone else. And, and you'd had a couple of really great roles in movies and, and I, you know, you're a director also, you had those ambitions. So um, I think like the idea of being taught, you, you didn't know, I mean, and, you know, we, yes, Sex and the City was a hit, but it was still early in the cable TV, you know, premium television era. And, uh, and to, you know, this idea of like, well, doing those a series like that is almost like being in a big movie. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very little different. Yeah. But, you know, so I, do, you know, but I definitely remember you said, look, there's just no, no, uh, I, I'm not committing to the, sh- to the show, even if you offer me the part. And uh, which was, of course, the opposite of what every other actor ever says. <laughs> right. Well, well, hindsight is twenty <laughs> but, twenty. Also, right. Of course, you look back. Yeah. And you, of course, but at the time, you know, it's right. a pilot. And you know what? I got it. I mean, I've you know, I get that. I'm. I, I was you know. I mean, reluctant to 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 dive into uh, TV shows. You know, I mean, you just don't want to. Uh, the, the commitment. I mean, Doug knows. You know, it takes over your life and. There's nothing left, you know, just, I mean, I had, I remember meeting, uh, 
playing golf once with with Larry David and I, I in the middle of Seinfeld at Riviera. And uh, I said, hey, uh, I love your show. He says, well, I, I'm glad you love it because it's killing me. <laughs> and yeah, I'm talking about that. And David. he meant it. It wasn't joking at all. David, you know? I'm in the, the thralls right now of another show. And I'm like, I wake I'm waking up again at four o'clock in the morning, miserable, stressed. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm even contemplating this again. And people ask a lot of people have said, why haven't you made 10 shows since then? I mean, I did make one that HBO fucked me on and <laughs> I'll never forgive. Me. No, I'm serious. They fucked me on it. They put on a lot of crappy shows after that. But the fact of the matter is it is, you know, of course, the rewards are amazing, but the grind is incredible and there's no guarantee of any type of success. So you can put in a tremendous amount of effort and see nothing come of it. So, you know, and that's, you know, I, I mean, look, I had been in those been in your shoes for years. You know, I mean, I had done by, you know, by the time we met, I'd been working for, um, I don't know, 15 years doing and I'd done a lot of half hours uh, early in my career. And, you know, so I knew exactly, you know, as an executive producer, supervising producer and a creator. And uh, it's, um, yeah, you, there is no, there's nothing else in your life. And, and, uh, and, and by the way, you have, you know, I mean, most, most people who are great showrunners do, but in, you know, a sort of never say die attitude toward the script and, and uh, incredible eye for the details. So that obsession also, you know, feeds itself. Like it's just a never ending spiral. And, uh, um, and it's, people don't understand. You're not just, it's not just that you're locked in a room writing the scripts or sitting with the team of people working on those outlines for future stories, but then you're also on the set, you know, making sure that the performances are what you hope for your casting, uh, your editing, and you're somehow dealing with the studio and all the marketing shit and all, you know, so it is a, uh, it's yeah. so many hats that you're wearing. Yeah, it's and, very uh, con- it's, time consuming. I, I wonder, I don't, I've never seen stats on it, but the divorce rate among showrunners has to be extremely high. <laughs> and, it, and people think it's because you have success. But the truth is, is it's really hard to balance life and that because it does become a 24 seven obsession. And even when you're not working, you're thinking about it. But two of the things I, you know, we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, but David, as a writer, you were in as the director, but you were so helpful, you know, as I said, HBO was really like they wanted just this fun show and little conflict, which, you know, I think, David, you would probably agree with me because I remember when we both looked at each other, when when Connolly and Piven did that scene at Koi, we knew we had some fireworks and we knew we had some spark. And that really wasn't there before you arrived. Now, I'm not saying you wrote it. I wrote it, but. You He's really, not saying that you did that. He's saying you were in the room. When but he, no, I absolutely that. didn't. I but, didn't write one word. I mean, I, you know, but we talked through a bunch of stuff and, you know, I would pitch stuff, you know, and I would say, you know. You helped us get a real through line and understand that we needed a structure. And the other thing which I wanted to talk to you about, the show ultimately, the way it looked was different. When when you came on, which I was not the director, but I had a I had a real strong vision of kind of, you know, making this as cinematic as possible. And I remember what you said to me, which was not only right, but we would have been screwed if not. And this is for filmmakers. Listen to this, what Doug's about to say, because this is very interesting. Especially for a pilot. Do you remember this, David? But we had debates over coverage and you're like, I'm going to cover everything and give you everything. So when you're in that editing room, you're not getting screwed. And uh, do you remember when we talked about that, though, I mean, I, you know, I, I've obviously learned my lesson the hard <laughs> way along, you know, um, and I, I made a whole feature film, Miami Rhapsody, with no cover. You know? <laughs> so, you know, that's where the Sex and the City experience sort of came in. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, I, I learned a lot in the, in the preceding years, but the 
Um, Michael Patrick King, who ran Sex in the City, was uh, adamant about having the coverage because it was a it was a writing tool. Yeah, it was a way to to shape scenes and to get in later and to get out earlier and to uh, heighten things and to take out jokes that didn't work. And if you committed to that sort of cinematic, everything's a four shot and everything's a you know tracking shot, uh, you you got stuck and you know you were that, that created writing problems. It wasn't. Yeah, which was, you know, just hurt the drama and hurt the character. Less than three years earlier, maybe even sooner, you know, TVs were growing and growing and the ability to see basically a movie in your house was starting to change. And that's what I wanted to do. But I mean, I remember specifically one scene where if we didn't cover the shit out of it and it was the golf scene on the roof. Oh, yeah. Right. It's just like a single on everybody. Right. Yeah. No, I. David covered yeah. everything. I mean, and I, I tried to, you know, I look to this day, I try and do that when I do a pilot because, you know, a lot of times you don't know what the show is and you don't know where the laughs are and you, you know, or you don't know which character trait you're trying to emphasize. And the and, other uh, thing is you don't know who your you don't know who your go-to guys are. And, you know, right. we were lucky. I believe we had five of them, but, you know, sometimes and the pilot I did afterwards, we actually couldn't cast one of the parts properly and it did did become a problem. But we had from that golf scene, which if you guys remember on the pilot, they're hitting golf balls off the roof. I don't want Ed Bigley rolling up here in his electric car. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, which is so crazy, David, as a golfer, we like that we even were pretending that people are going to hit golfs into houses. I mean, it's like they would have killed somebody for sure. Well, that was only a slight exaggeration from our experience watching Mark do it in his backyard <laughs> right. into the canyon. And, and and he and I mean he he definitely they were hitting over houses. I mean maybe not at houses, but <laughs> he's got great club control. So he also hits the ball three hundred and fifty yards. So yeah, it goes and a he, yeah no, he's a very good golfer. I'm, right. I'm not going to dispute that. The cinema of the show, I mean, let's let's call it the filmmaking. You know, was also it was an, another interesting discussion with HBO and uh, where the where the show evolved to which was gorgeous and incredibly cinematic and fluid and and with very fancy production values was not how we started if you remember they, oh, I they remember. you know they really yeah i mean they they really wanted that 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 uh tv hand they wanted the opposite of sex in the city you know they they wanted the a handheld no you know available light version of the show that was sort of very raw they and, wanted uh, cheap and document they wanted cheap. they wanted cheap. Yeah, they wanted they wanted it to be cost, you know, less half less than half of what Sex and City cost. And they wanted it to. Yeah, they wanted it to feel as as much like a documentary as possible. And I don't know. So we found a middle ground, I think. You know, I mean, that's the thing when you when you commit to the coverage, you're, you're committing to uh, at least making people look good and, and framing things in, a, in an elegant way. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I told them I wanted to shoot widescreen and they they t- they were like, what, are you crazy? they really said something <laughs> to the effect of like, who do you think you are, Orson Welles? <laughs> and I was like, and I remember this conversation. I'm like, Joey on NBC is shooting widescreen. Everything will be widescreen soon. That's how I want to do it. But what we did get, and I think some of the ways that you kind of combine both, we ended up reshooting the opening, which you gave us a really dynamic kind of opening that was the vibe of the show that it would become. And also you did, which is Connolly's favorite moment, and maybe one of my favorite moments of the show in episode seven, season one. That's one of my favorites. The sure. introduction to, to Reese is where, and I do uh, think... 
Yeah, go ahead, David. No, I was I just watching that today. I was really proud of that. You know, I, I had totally forgotten it. Like you could, you you know, before this morning, I couldn't have quoted one moment from that. But it was that is a great introduction of a character. Yeah, absolutely. Also, too, Sofia Coppola made a movie years later. I'm drawing a blank on the name, but look it up, and it's with Stephen Dorff. And I know a few actors that went in and met with Sofia Coppola for this role, and she referenced that episode of Entourage in every in every meeting. So well, well, what I can say is that, so David, he did, he got us a pilot that could get picked up, which almost didn't. And fortunately we had enough room in the editing room that we could adjust because it did, right? No, a hundred percent because of David. I mean, cause it was almost like when you, when you put it together with that much coverage, it's almost like your script is kind of ripped apart. And then the editing process is where you kind of put it back together and then you can make it better or not. Me, when you can get it right, which you should never do on a pilot, when you can get it right, you know you have the actors and then you know you can count on them and that's not. But David was great with that. But I think by the time we reshot the opening of the show and by the time you shot that scene, because I didn't really, the only thing I discussed with you when we we did that scene in the Chateau Marmont with Reese's introduction I said, David, I just don't want it to be the static thing. I want it to be like, you know, really. And and when I look at it, you shut the shit out of it. It feels like a Scorsese movie. You know, it really has just a great. It's uh, no, that's I, I you know, it, it it's just it's a it's a really great bit of filmmaking. I, you know, if I say so myself and I, saying this with like 15 years of perspective, <laughs> I literally hadn't seen it since then. But uh, it's uh, it was really fun. And uh, and the opening of of the of the pilot. That we did, you know, which has the same flavor, you know, with Turtle getting out of the at Fred Siegel's is uh, is a pretty sexy, uh, you know, invitation to the show. So, again, for filmmakers out there, do you, David, like when you're in a pilot, so is it like the thought of, listen, let's just shoot everybody, shoot everything, shoot until we can't shoot anymore, get the pilot picked up before we start getting creative with shots and sort of really stylizing it is is the only the only object of the pilot is let's just keep this thing moving right no i think no i think the in in the case of entourage specifically no i think you you know a lot you, you want to introduce style as early as you can in in the making of most shows and i think we approached uh the first round of shooting of with of entourage uh, the pilot with a it just i was you know, we had gotten some very stern lectures from the execs at HBO about how to approach it. And, and, uh, and, you know, there was, for example, like no Steadicam, there was no budget in the, the for Steadicam. Like, so now the show opens with a Steadicam. Right. <laughs> you know, so, so that was Doug's influence, you know, okay, we're picked up. We're redoing this. We're going to do it the way I saw it in my head. Uh, and uh, fuck HBO, you know, <laughs> so, or fuck the budget at this point. And he's right. He's a hundred percent right. And that's the, you know, so then the show takes on new, gets a, like a, just a new uh, skill set. You know, it just, it, it has new tools that, available to it. And they all are useful. You know, the handheld is great at times, and the, uh, but the more glamorous approach, which was always how Doug saw the show and what it evolved to be. I mean, of course, it evolved to the point where it costs more than sex. That's <laughs> <laughs> just because you know, of Connolly's got... salary. Hey, do you, David, yeah. do you remember, and I know Doug, once in a while we talk about this. I don't know if you guys remember this. And I guess it, there's a scene with Adrian and I, and this was, oh, remember, remember, we shot it. the pilot in five days. You know, by the end, we were, yeah. we were doing eight day episodes or seven and a half day episodes by the end. And for people listening, that's a lot. Two and a half days per episode uh, added to shooting an episode is a lot. An episode in five days 
with the quality that we were striving for was just really, really, really difficult. And it amounted to long hours. And I just remember being at the house and it was the scene where I basically, it, Vince says, well, what do you think? And I ultimately am like, I don't know. I just think it's a dog. I feel weird saying it because I don't know anything, but I think the script sucks basically, right? And do you remember, right. Doug, do you remember this? We just, it, it's funny because it was the one time, never since then that I see was Adrian panicked. Like, what are we going to do? The scene I believe you're talking about is Late at night, you right. and Adrian on the couch right. with Sarah Lum. Right. We called, dim Sum Lum. Dim Sum Lum. <laughs> and it was probably four o'clock in the morning. It was late. And the scene was not working. And uh, David, do you remember this at all? Totally. I, I, I remember it wasn't working. And I remember watching it today going, yeah, it kind of works. Like, I don't know. Like, why were we killing ourselves? Like, what? What? I, I, you, you'd have to refresh my memory. It, would, it was I'm, one I'm, take. And this is the first time that Doug, I'll, I'll never forget this. Because, you know, listen, in L.A., you're trained not to drink the water from the faucet, right? So at a certain point, I go over to the faucet. And, you know, right. there was like, but there was like a little spigot for the fresh water. And I'm like, my chest all puffed out. And I'm cranking this little thing and Doug's like dude you just, you just I don't know you just look like an, I don't know you don't look cool I'm like, you don't look like a New Yorker I go I go well yeah I don't know but I'm not gonna you know I don't want to drink the water he's like Kevin you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day we're doing a take where you take where you take a drink <laughs> out of the regular faucet and I'm like all right relax with the, the pack but, a the, day. but the real meat of the scene was when they got on that couch and we were trying to get this moment between just them what, it just, where, sometimes it's just not happening right? where we saw the difference between the the best friend and the movie star they were supposed to go back to their high school reunion and E was like I don't even really want you going there because it'll be all about you and the scene was honestly I was I was probably suicidal while this was going so on so was I and I'm not I'm rare it's hard to panic me that was a tough one and it's a strange thing for an audience out there the words did not change but the writer David if you remember the director you start to question everything because you're like, something's wrong. You start to question whether you cast the wrong people. And you, you're saying you're thinking about firing me? We were doing that scene? Right? Firing me, I would have been fired. David would have been back on Rome <laughs> and I would have been fucking back in Merrick, Long Island. But, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that all of a sudden, David, what happened was like four o'clock in the morning, we're like, all right, one more take. And there was one take. And I don't think the scene was okay. I think the scene was fucking magical. It was just real. It just happened. In one that one take, yeah. No, yeah. I I do re I, I vaguely remember that, that that yeah we were just struggling struggling struggling. Let's just do one more take and then oh okay yep. that was it. Sometimes as an actor that that happens right. I mean David, I'm sure you've seen it before, and, and not that that scene had any degree of difficulty or it was so terrible, but once in a while you just hit a wall in a scene, and 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 fortunate for us, we left there. Whew, thank God, I think that scene was pretty good. But those first ten twelve. Literally 15 takes were like but, scratching our head. Yeah. And that is, you know, that's the part of uh, filmmaking that's so hard to explain to networks and studio executives and production executives, you know, that sometimes like you can't, the time you, you can't account for it, you know, like you just need to keep going and, and you need to do more takes and it has nothing. It doesn't have to be rewritten. The actors are doing fine and you just have to keep going until you, it, it, the rhythm is right. It's it's like a, it's a piece of music. It's it's jazz, and you're uh, until it you know uh, until it sings to you. You know you just you shouldn't be shouldn't have to leave. The difference between television and film. Now you've done a bunch of movies, right? Is it a different level? I know it's a different level of commitment, but what would you prefer? And what are the major differences between being 
a top-tier TV director and a top-tier movie director, aside from being lucky enough to direct people like Meryl Streep. But from a from a personal standpoint, a workload, what's the difference? Uh, it sounds crazy to say. I mean, other than the, the other than the time factor, which, by the way, you know, has shrunk so much in movies that it's almost parallel to television. I mean, I've made the last uh, three features I made were shot in 37 days. So if you do the, you know, it's not quite uh, what we're, you know, we were trying to do whatever, six or seven pages a day in that, you know, in the entourage pilot and maybe, you know, in a movie you're trying to do four or five. So it's not that big a difference. Um, honestly, that's it. I mean, I, you know, yeah, you, you know, I, I, if you're making a TV show, though, you're not working with uh, internationally renowned movie stars. But you're work, but you're hopefully you're working with great actors who are perfect for the part, and uh, and whatever uh, you know, my my investment and and uh, my commitment and my loss of sleep and anxiety is and is the same, uh, and uh, uh, I you know there's there's really not a difference. I mean, for I, I you know I mean it, yeah, it's great to like say oh I made a movie or. You know, but uh, honestly, I the joy that I get from the work that I do is the collaboration with talented people, and and whatever the medium is, uh, it's an opportunity to work with really talented people. And it sounds like a bullshit, oh, you know, you, you know, uh, response, but it's it's really true. I mean, you know, where people end up seeing it and how successful it is 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 uh, isn't really something that sticks with me. I, you know, I mean, I've made a lot of some movies that were huge hits and I've made some movies that, you know, nobody saw, literally nobody. And, you know, I had made a movie with Harvey Weinstein that he completely, you know, basically shelved. I mean, came out for one weekend and and uh, and I'm just as proud of that. I have just as very fond memories of the experience of making it. Uh, you know, they're, they're it's just as important to me. I mean, they're every everything that you commit yourself to is sort of, uh, you know, like one of my children. And I, you know, I don't work a lot. I'm not like a guy who's, you know, popping in and got, you know, episode episodes lined up for the next two years. So, and I could see how then when you're doing it, it's like a little more um, mechanical, you know, you're, it's, you're not, but, you know, to go in and do the pilots and create a world and put the cast together. And it's, it's a movie. It just happens to be a short movie. I'm the only guy who ever won an Oscar for making a pilot, TV pilot. So uh, David, explain uh, that. So you, because I know the story, but tell tell everyone. Because uh, I, you know, I I did I wrote a pilot on spec in in the mid nineties uh, that I sold to DreamWorks in the first year that there was a DreamWorks studio, and uh, working with Spielberg and Katzenberg, and uh, ABC bought it, and we, you know, was I was paid handsomely. We, you know, made a really cool pilot. And I remember seeing it in the cutting room. First time the editor showed me the rough cut. And I said, wow, it's kind of cool. It's a, like, it's a, as I imagined it. And there's no way that ABC puts this on. I mean, they just, it won't go with anything they have. It's too avant-garde. And sure enough, you know, they, they weren't interested. And I said to the studio, I said, well, is there something we can do with it? Can we get into some film festivals? You know, like that's all it's good for, you know? And Terry Press, who was running, um, marketing at the studio said film festival screw that we'll get it nominated for an oscar and uh so she they they put it up in, in century city for the, the qualifying number of days 
And sure enough, we got nominated for an Oscar, and 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 then the, we won. What? And the next day, you the, don't know this. Academy, to his research. Holy yeah. shit! So I won I want I want an Oscar for a pilot that we made for ABC. And and sure enough, the next day, the Academy changed the rules. Like if you make a, you know, now of course it's all changing back. Right, you know, right. You can win an Oscar now for making TV. So uh, this, especially this year. Now, David, for some reason, Connolly doesn't know you won an Oscar. That's but, crazy. But maybe you don't know this, but Connolly made a short film that was received no nominations. Well, no, I made it to the final 10 for the Academy Awards. So if that happened today. Is that true? Yeah, we made it to the final oh. cut. David, so, I don't know if you know this on the audience, happened too. Today, if you that can, happened today, we would have gotten the nomination. You can pull this won. up online, but Connolly directed a short film with Robert Downey Jr., Tim Roth, Zoe Deschanel. And Amanda, Amanda Pete. Pete. And that's how we almost got nominated for an Oscar. It wasn't a pilot. But, you know, let me ask you something about It's funny because this is coming to my next point about the about TV executives and that whole thing. Um, I, I Whatever. Not, names aren't important. But I was doing a, doing a TV show that I was involved in on the production side. And, you know, you, you, you're you pouring your, your guts into it. And we were looking for uh, uh, the, dire- the, the TV director. And, and a studio executive actually said to me, Kevin, listen, this is never going to be anybody's baby. Well, like a weird thing to say, but I think the thought being that like, if you're like an episodic director and you're like, oh, I'm doing three Big Bang theories and then I'm going to do two whatever, you don't have the same love for it. Now, when, as a director, when you're doing a pilot, you can put that love into it. Do you find when you just are going into a, a kind of a ship that's already sailing uh, as a director what's the difference there do you see what i'm saying no. you know i haven't done i haven't gone into a ship that's you know i i did it on um i worked on uh, the morning show where i did not do the pilot that was uh, the only show in in my recent memory you know that's I mean, a great I did show. It, uh where um where i came in after the fact uh for a long time and um uh Partly, uh, I had I, I loved the writing there. Also, you know the the scripts were great. Uh, the cast was phenomenal, uh, and uh, the producer uh, was a longtime uh, friend and colleague, John Melfi. And uh, and he, he worked very, you know, he, he was very persuasive at, at bringing me in. And I and I, I was I was very intrigued. It was just you know it was sort of that the new Apple show. It, fe- it felt like. Being part of a giant pilot versus, you know, I mean, uh, Mimi Leader did the actual pilot and it's great. And, you know, she's a, a very talented director. Uh, and uh, but, you know, the that, that was a show where each episode felt like its own. Its own little movie thing. Right. And yeah. Um, and uh, and working with that cast, you know, with Jen and Reese uh, was was and, and Steve was thrilling. And I, I had the made a movie with Steve and that was it was just a chance, you know, I'd made a movie with Jen, I made a movie with Steve. It was a chance for me to reconnect with them. So there were a lot of reasons um, why I committed to doing that. And it was, again, it was really satisfying. You know, I, again, the collaboration was, was really joyful. I guess it's the difference between the, yeah. a film director and a, and, and a director. But I will say, you know, I, I, you know, I did a TV pilot for uh, ABC a couple of years ago and, um, and, and one the year before for NBC, I did the pilot for Manifest and, uh, we get into the cutting room. I did my five days or whatever as the director. And, uh, and they say, okay, you can leave now, you know? And I go, no, I, I'm not leaving. You know, I'm going to see this through, you know, I'm going to see this. I'm going to get the network notes. I'm going to go to the mix. You know, I'm going to do the color. I'm going to oversee all the VFX, you know, I'm, this, it's a, this is a movie. We're going to do it right. And, uh, people are surprised. 
you know, most directors are like, okay, I'm done. See That's later. my point. So Yeah. So, David, I don't know if you saw the news, but Sex and the City is coming back for another season. I don't know if you're involved in this, but I did see that. I've already reached out to to Michael and uh, Patrick King is going to uh, supervise it. And uh, and John Melfi is going to produce it. And and honestly, I'm thrilled. You know, I mean, I, you know, I hope you get to bring back uh, the Entourage guys one day. You know, I think that uh, uh, I, I that was the one thing. I mean, is I, I really enjoyed the, the first movie they did. And, and I was frustrated by the second movie because I. To me, I felt like they could have been making those movies for uh, for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. I mean, I felt like the audience was there with those women that we could see them grow old and die. I mean, you know, and yeah. they could address the issues of those characters in New York City as history evolved and those and, and, and they got to address aging and what it was, you know, what fr- friendship among women as they got older was all about. And now they will get to do that. And I, and I'm, and I'm thrilled, uh, you know, and, and, and it's less about being spectacular and it's more about character. And I, so I, I you know, I think it's an enormous opportunity and television itself has changed. You know, there won't be the emphasis on sex. It'll be much more. I mean, I hope there's great, you know, hilarious sex stuff, but, uh, I think it's so much more about um, what it means to be a woman of a certain age in New York today. And that's that's a fascinating story. Yeah, that'll be great. So uh, are you do you think you'll be involved with that? And I want to talk to you about your involvement with it earlier. Uh, uh, it's too, you know, it's a little early to say, you know, yeah. look, if they invited me, I would be tempted. You know, I mean, if it was if the schedule permitted, I, you know, I have nothing but the warmest feelings for everybody involved in that show. It was uh, that that was a great time. And I I'll tell you my you know, you asked about it earlier. What was my uh, Sex in the City story? So I didn't do the pilot. I was um, I think I was doing uh, Earth to the Moon at the time that they did the pilot. And uh, and then afterwards, sir, I had made Miami Rhapsody with Sarah Jessica. And so she she reached out to me and she said, will you come do like episodes two and three? And the, I said, well, send me the scripts. And, and so I, uh, Darren and, and Michael had written the scripts, Darren Starr. And, um, and I, I read the scripts and I remember like, in, it's in episode two or three. I, I, I couldn't tell you which one that four women get in the back of a cab and, and have a hilarious, but very, uh, graphic conversation about taking it up <laughs> the butt. And, uh, and I honestly did not know women like that. Like I just didn't recognize those women as people that I related to. I do. I just don't know women who talk like that. And, uh, and so I was, I was very reluctant. I, in the end I said, no. Uh, and, um, and so Sarah Jessica over the years was very persistent. So, you know, uh, they, she invited me the next season and finally I said to her, I said, look, when, when you have an episode where there's no sex, uh, I will, I would love to do that. And so she sent me an episode in, in the summer of, um, 2001 that was uh uh where she and Aiden get engaged and uh and I and I directed that and and ultimately I ended up doing six episodes of the show tons of sex you know poor, poor Kim Cattrall like every possible position of, of nakedness <laughs> I find it fascinating I think our audience would find it fascinating that at one point you passed on sex in the city because it was too racy but you did Entourage, <laughs> which has somehow, which I guarantee has less sex than Sex in the City in it, but was somehow perceived as, as you know, by some as vulgar. What, what are your thoughts on the differences of those two? Well, I don't, you know, by the time I read your script, I had already done, um, 
you know, tantric sex episode <laughs> of Sex in the City. You know, so so yeah, like uh, uh, for me, I thought that uh, Entourage just yeah read kind of clean, you know, uh, right. but but also very authentic. You know, I mean, it was guys. You know, the it's you know, you look back at it and I, you wonder. I mean, if you if you showed up with that script or at least you know with the transcript of that show today, I, I don't know what people would say. You know, <laughs> I know they, what they put say. it on. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, there's language that you just can't get expressed today. Yeah. You know, just the world has changed since. But it is funny uh, because and sex, and sex in the City did lead the way to it. But what I've seen that has happened and whether women spoke like that at that time or not, or they created that, I can't tell you. But what really happened after Entourage, all the female movies started becoming vulgar women talking like you would expect men to talk. Absolutely. No, it leads right to bridesmaids, you know, for example, or, or, you know, I don't know what the other examples are, but, uh, uh, for sure, you yeah, know, train wreck, the, the, all of those things. You know? Bridesmaids is awesome. Right. <laughs> bridesmaids not, is one of the funniest movies it's not, it's I've not, ever It's seen not about awesome or not. It's no, about, it's great. Yeah. It's, they, they are great. It's about the fact that suddenly men weren't allowed to speak. And then basically you could put what men would normally say into women's mouths and suddenly it was like acceptable. So, you know, I find it funny. And by the way, I, you know, a lot of people ask me, do you like Sex in the City? I love Sex in the City. I actually think the pilot was genius. And I think the show itself was great. But um, it's... Well, and you tapped into the same core uh, theme, which is um, loneliness in a glamorous setting and the, and the, and, 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 and the need to bond uh, and the need to form friendships out, that, to form your own family. Uh, and, and, and in that way, the shows are exactly parallel, you know, just a different gender thematically. Uh, and, and, and that is the core idea of all great TV shows, believe it or not. If you look at, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and Cheers and, uh, uh, you know, Sex and the City and Entourage, I mean, they're all about the same thing. They're about that surrogate family that gets formed because people are alone in a big city. And that's why people watch TV then. Now we watch TV for, <laughs> for, for films, you know. But David, so it's, so it's, much it's, so much has changed. Obviously, the sort of the narrative has swung, and you know, Entourage has been kind of on uh, on the outside. You know, Doug and I joke around. If you, if you go onto HBO Max and you type in ENT, Curb Your Enthusiasm comes up. <laughs> like uh, it's a true story. That's a true story. Entourage, us, Entourage is buried so far away. Now, listen, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You don't have to be, you know, Mike Wallace to realize that an Entourage reboot looks different. Obviously, nobody can operate like that. Ari Gold would be fired in a day. We know this. But do you think <laughs> Again, you thought I was hesitant about the pilot times that by five. And that's how I feel about the reboot. I just don't to me. Yeah, we're talking about like, what does an entourage reboot look like? And being completely honest, what do you think? Is well, the first of all, of it can't like be all white. That would be like the first thing I would say, you yeah. know, is uh, and I know, Doug, like, you know, I think you would that would be your instinct. Also, you know, we that's uh, these guys have a bigger circle than that. You know, Absolutely. And, and I and, think, to, but that's, and, that's definitely how culture and how America has changed even over the last 20 years, because Entourage, even though it was inspired by Mark, I of course was writing my friendship and my group. So how they came, I think now when I see my son, who's now 19 years old, of course, he's living in Los Angeles in a cultural mix, which I did not. I grew up with Italians and Jews and that that's how it went. So, but I think what Kevin's speaking of, which as the writer, 
there's no problem with an entourage reboot because first of all, the guys are older, they're more mature. Second of all, we all live this life. We all know there's things we might have said five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago that we're cognizant enough of and smart enough to know, wow, maybe I should rethink how I speak and maybe I wouldn't say something like that. So it would actually, to me, be interesting to see the guys navigating through the PC landscape, especially. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. So if you grow up in, you know, if you come of age at a certain time and you have to adapt, you know, the sense, I mean, we're, we are, we're doing it. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm 61 years old, uh, you know, obviously you, you need to learn uh, every day, you know, the world is shifting. And uh, I, I think, I think it's fascinating, honestly, to, you know, I think it's a gift to be able to bring back characters that you created 15 years ago because i think that the, there's it's not just the nostalgia of it it's it's to see the growth you know michael apted who we talked about earlier did rome you know he made one of the great works oh, yeah. of film of the century he did seven up and all the movies that came after that and that is you know um th- that opportunity to see characters mature and to see them deal with problems that are very different than they dealt with when they were 30 when now that they're 45 it, or, it is uh, is fascinating i mean you know what is uh what is an aging vince what roles are there right you know right. how does he adapt to a character to being a character actor what does that mean to his pocketbook you know what does it mean when he's now like almost second fiddle to E, who's like running a studio. I got to tell you, Johnny I, Drama's I, got a podcast. I can tell you that right yeah, now, Johnny well, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, but I think like, I to me, it's like, you know, suddenly there's so much role reversal and there's, and how does that affect friendship? And, you know, and then you, you introduce, uh, you know, the, the friendships definitely get, um, perverted in some way by all the new relationships yeah. that people and have, two things you, know, you and- say two things you said david one seven up everybody who's listening out there should watch this documentary it's which wild every seven years michael apted would update these these real people it's a documentary english and you'd see them as they grew up in all their trials and tribulations and i think what's interesting for entourage which which us who are still such close friends and as you know david and kevin we've all watched our friends become massively successful, fall on hard times, come back, some not. And and all of that stuff, you know, it's not just Hollywood. It's everybody deals with that in every walk of life. So I think it's, you know, I think it is interesting. And and I think, you know, you touched on it a little bit in Entourage with Ari and his wife. But, you know, all these guys have marriages. They have kids. I mean, you've been through uh, some, you know, very rocky uh, family times. And I, I'm sure you write about it beautifully. You know, I, I think it's it's really dramatic, but it's also funny. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, there's it's really ripe for for comedies. Well, I read I read an article with Eddie Murphy and they were asking him how how he feels when he looks back on some of his early SNL skits and, and some of his early movies. And he said, I, I, I cringe. Right. And this is Eddie Murphy, the maybe the funniest guy of all time. Yeah, you look back on things that you did and you talked about when you were in your early 20s or when you were in your teens that you wouldn't fathom, you know? Like I said, I have a baby on the way, right? It's like when everything is different but I than still, it was 20 I, years I, ago. I still like to look at things in their historical perspective. And I think, you know, both Sex and the City was clearly a groundbreaking show about female empowerment. It was the first time we really saw women who were, you know, making money like men make money. And then it was, can they act like men or not? Which I think, I think the ultimate answer was they 
they still wanted love more than anything, I think. But I, I, I don't know. But Entourage was always supposed to be a show about friendship and loyalty and and people who came from nothing kind of enjoying the the good life together, you know, and that was the key to it. But uh, it would be interesting to check back in on these characters and, you know, because listen, you know, the movie was, you know, whatever, that's five years, you know, so much has changed. It would be, I mean, I have, uh, you know, Ian Stone have a five-year-old. Yeah. And it's, you know. Well, the truth right, is. Vince can't be like the megastar. The truth is right? it all just goes around in a circle. And David, the reality is right now, I, to be honest with you, I'm not, I've gotten more accustomed to the idea that I would consider doing it because I love being around these guys, but I've said I would never do it again. And now we'll, we'll see, but I think the way to make this happen, because so many people are asking, and really Kevin Dillon is the main one that wants this. Dillon wants back on but, that set, bro. You know who needs <laughs> Why to does call? that not surprise me at all? <laughs> you know who needs to call HBO is David Franco. David Franco <laughs> needs to go lead the lead the, the tide. But this was great, though, man. I really, I really appreciate it. It was great catching up with you. And when I'm in Miami, you know, I saw you a couple of years ago. He wants to go to a with you take him out take him out for a yeah. good time well, you can take the yacht out <laughs> i want to know david if you transferred your tennis skills to pickleball at all because you need to you know i've never played pickleball i you know i i, I as it happens because my kids when we did entourage uh my kids were i think i don't know two or three years old and um they're both started college this year in a pandemic which and Mine you too. have a son who's going yeah. through the same thing and uh uh but they also they're great golfers how is so your I've, golf game? Uh, what what do you wait, shoot? Wait, wait, what do you shoot? What, I want to hear about. Well, I can golf. tell you that yesterday I played the from the tips seventy two hundred yards at uh, Crandon Golf Course, uh, which is one of the third is ranked the third most difficult municipal golf course in the United States, and uh, and I shot eighty five. Mm. I knew it. I knew so, you were a good golfer. From the tips. Why? Why play my, from the tips? Go to the so, Blues, Frankel. What are you talking about? But uh, you know, I had I shot two weeks ago. I shot my lowest round. With, uh, which was 82 and uh my son that day shot 66 oh so he's like that he's good like is, that is, are they is he playing so college golf? yeah he's on the he says he's hoping he's gonna find out tonight if he's going to uh stanford oh, he's God. he's on the stanford golf team but he's finding out if stanford is going to uh have a golf team this spring and oh, whether or not uh, they'll be on campus. 66 he shot? I'm I'm more amazed that they're talking he about He shot a 60 in the junior PGA two years ago. I'm, so, I'm sad. Uh, I'm happy for him, but I'm sad for my game. I, you know, what, yeah. gives no, a shit it's, about it's your game. Whole you other, got a kid it's coming. a whole other... It's a whole other game. Why don't you ask David what he did to help his kid get in this place? Because yeah, Kylie's yeah. got four months left, and then the kid's gonna have a club in his no, hand. She's it's a girl, but she's gonna she's gonna swing a golf club or she's gonna play chess like oh, Queen's you, Gamut. You know what? I, I, you know, Kevin, you cannot start too early. I, I mean, I can show you photos and video. The kids were one and a half, two years old, and they were out in the backyard swinging. I mean, they started competing at age seven. That's the first year that we went to the. Uh, the uh, U.S. Kids Golf World Championships at Pinehurst, wow. North Carolina. Right, and well, that, if you get that opportunity, that will be the greatest day of, of your life as a father. Uh, is when you take your when you're walking down the fairway, holding your daughter's hand with her name on the on the bib <laughs> on the, uh, as you're carrying her bag. I'll be the caddy, and she sure. turns to you, and, and you get to the ball, and you and and she says, "Dad, I think it's a seven iron." And you, <laughs> you're okay. 
I agree with you. That's right. Because awesome. the, cat, wow. the player is well, always right. Well, when we get to Florida, I'm going to have you and your kids embarrass Connolly on the golf course. And I'd I'm like gonna, to learn from him. I'm going to embarrass you on the pickleball court. I'm going to get you start playing that game because it's great. great. No, I, I'd love to try. I've watched it. I watched like the championship and it looked amazing. It's fun. It's, it's fun as hell. It's hard to translate on TV, although I'm going to send some videos of, of my Doug will send some videos of how great he is at pickleball. <laughs> like just like uh, narcissistic videos. But he is. Doug's a, I don't want to say world class, but for Doug is in the elite. Jew, are you, Doug is an elite. Are you, do you are you competing at a high level? I, mean, I, I am playing with very high level people. Unfortunately, they're obviously, they're obviously better than me. But I mean, I'm playing with pro tennis players, and and for a for a 52 year old slow Jewish guy, I'm I'm very good at this game. Am I world class? Obviously, I'm not. But I'm I'm pretty damn good for a, a top rank. Doug gave a tip to a top rank tennis player who said, "Listen, I'm not going to have some aging screenwriter tell me how to play a, a racket sport." <laughs> David knows who it is. That's what Marty Fish said to me. I told him to get his ass to the net and pick a ball, and he he said he's not going to listen to me. Some, some aging, aging screenwriter tell me, me what to do with a racket. <laughs> so, all right. Well, anyway, well, thank David, you, David, this was awesome. I really appreciate it. We made. Oh, uh, uh, thank you. I, I, it's been really fun to catch up and great to see you. Kevin, congratulations again. Thank you very much. Birth, imminent birth. It's uh, coming. That's the, the most thrilling thing that will ever happen to you. And then you'll be thrilled to do the entourage. Uh, yeah. Then. But then I'll be like, I'll be like reboot. Dylan. Then I'll yeah. be like Dylan. Like, yo, we yeah. got to make this reboot. Do happen. you know how insane yeah. it would be that I had my son on this set and my daughter when they were little and then my son acted on this show. And then if we somehow were back on a set with Kevin Connolly, his baby <laughs> and Jerry and his kids, his two kids. And I mean, Dylan obviously has a bunch and God knows how many Adrian's got rolling around <laughs> in the ocean somewhere. But, uh, but anyway, we really appreciate it, David. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, David. Okay. All right. It's First of all, it's great catching up with them. And, and again, you know, uh, everyone out there, there's, there's people who come into your life, which it was a little random that we got, David, and he really helped change the trajectory of the show and help make it what it was to become. And the fact that he was so connected with Sex and the City, too, makes it interesting. And now Sex and the City's back. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's directing oh, one of those for sure he's directing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's funny that it was a little too, uh, it was a little too racy when it's, he first it's, it. It's amazing. I learned a lot about Frankel because you know how it goes, man. Like, everybody's got their thing. When we show up on set, we're working. I, you know, I chatted with David between takes or what have you. But the thing I realized about David Frankel in this interview is that David's a real artist. Oh, yeah. Right? He's not, It's like, I guess to my point was, I was kind of hoping he was going to say it, but he didn't. You know, he's not like one of these, like, TV hacks. <laughs> he's not. Well, I, yeah, no, it's not. true. He's, they're, a, they're, he's a film, first of all, he's an, I mean, and I don't say this lightly, he's an Oscar-winning filmmaker. Right. But he's a real filmmaker. Right, and, and he wants to see it through. And what people uh, have to understand at home is that when you make a movie, long after the actors leave the set, you got, as the director, you got six months to go, right down to the, the color timing, the sound, everything. It's a monster. And on TV shows, you don't do that. And David wanted to do that. And it, it came as a surprise because the TV guys, most of them are already off to the next. And don't get me wrong, it's a great living. But a guy like David Frankel, he starts it, he wants to finish it, and he wants to see yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's, there's, what's, there's what's, you know, which is less and less now because really filmmakers are so involved in TV now. And when I say filmmakers, like Billy Walsh would say film, film over TV. Right. But what, I'm, what I mean is, is there used to be 
there's a group of directors that just go from one show to the next right. to the next. And honestly, there were a lot of directors who would work on the show who I didn't even want them to be involved in the editing afterwards because, you know, I wanted them to get it shot. And essentially, some of them, you call them traffic cops. Then there's directors who come in. And, you know, we had a number of them from Mark Mylod to to obviously David Franco. Julian Farina. Julian Farino, David Nutter. David Nutter that were real filmmakers and would come and, and bring something extra special. Patty Jenkins did two episodes. Patty Jenkins, who did Wonder Woman, did two episodes of Entourage also, right. by the way. Gal Gadot did one. But uh, anyway, it's uh, it was great to, to catch up with him and, and really kind of reminisce about how this pilot got going and, and, and all of the starts and stops of it. So And also, too, he's he's not for he's not for hire, Frankel, right? If he he's not going to go do something unless he wants to do it. Right. He's not I don't know what he you know, he doesn't need the money. He's going to look at something and go, yeah, I want to do this or I don't. And yep. it was really interesting to hear him say that about sex in the city. Like, I want my first episode to be one with no sex. Yeah. You know, and when you get into a place which very few of us do, and uh, to be honest, I, must be I, nice, I, right? I'm not there. But <laughs> when you can pick and choose what you want to do, you've done Good something great. And he's awesome. And uh, we thank him. So anyway, we'll be back on Friday with. Kevin Dillon, we believe. I can't even swear to that, by the way. I can't swear, but I think so. Yeah, he'll be back. He's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I just, we just got to give him a little, we got to give him a little leg room. Don't be uh, discouraged if we don't get the full force victory scream at the time. <laughs> but we will try. And uh, for everyone out there, the podcast is really doing great. You want, I say this to, to everyone on Instagram, Chris Mancini, thank you for not sending me another shirtless pic. By the you way, me, Chris one with Man- a shirt. me too. Chris Mancini. Now, do you feel bad, Doug, a little bit? No. Okay. I like Chris, Chris Mancini. Man- no, but Chris Mancini resent DMs and now he's wearing a shirt. I want and I feel like we shirt shamed him. I, I feel like want him to wear a shirt. I don't want any dude sending me. You don't want. By the way, I don't want any women sending me shirtless shirts. Anyway, <laughs> right. You so would I'd, prefer everybody had a shirt. Everybody has a clothes. Let's keep the clothes on. But I what, felt guilty seeing him in a shirt because he looked wildly uncomfortable. That's all I'm going to say. It's all good. But what I would say is, you know, if you're serious, if people are serious about the reboot, which you know, I'm not trying to play some cool role. You know, I, I, I like to work. I like these guys, but I, it hasn't been something that I thought I'd ever do again. But the, tar- the chatter is definitely heating up by the week. And if you're really interested, that, spread the word about the podcast. And I'm dead serious because that's the only way it's going to happen. Spread the word, you know, uh, review it nicely. Give us the five stars. I saw that one jerk off who said I was too intense. Oh, boy. I'm not intense, asshole. Wait till but- he sees that clip. He's lucky <laughs> I don't post that clip. So anyway, be well, stay safe, and we will see you on Friday. Friday. Uh, that wraps up another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Ellen. Follow us at Victory the Podcast on Instagram. I thought you were going to say that. Yes, follow us on Victory the Podcast. And also follow actionparkmedia.com and help us with that blue check. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <It's so> embarrassing. <laughs>